Welcome to the QuackCast, number 55, plus or minus 2. I don't really know what the numbering is anymore. I have foregone the prior introduction. I have grown weary of it, and we'll just jump straight into the podcast at hand. This one is entitled Homeopathetic Vaccinations. I'm sorry, Homeopathic Vaccinations. You see, I made a play on words between homeopathic and homeopathetic. It's so clever. My son always says, gee, Dad, you think you're so edgy. Anyway, let's get to the meat of the matter. It probably comes as no surprise to anyone that listens to this podcast or reads my blogs that I am a proponent of vaccines. They give the most bang for the infection prevention buck. And like many childhood illnesses covered by the vaccine, are now so rare that many physicians, even infectious disease docs, have never taken care of a case of measles or mumps or German measles, etc. It is a remarkable triumph of modern medicine. Of course, the decline of infectious diseases is always multifactorial. Good nutrition, understanding disease epidemiology, and good hygiene have all contributed to the decline of many diseases, vaccine-preventable or not. The application of science, however, has resulted in an almost inconceivable decline in contagion that has killed and injured millions. It is always better to prevent an illness than to treat it. As the old saying goes, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Or I prefer, an ounce of perversion is worth a pound of pure. Even those who erroneously believe that standard vaccinations are not effective and are dangerous Understand it is better to prevent illness with some sort of treatment, but rather than use an effective vaccine, they choose instead other options, like homeopathic vaccines. Vaccines offer a small fixed amount of a pathogen, called the antigen, to the immune system. A touch of bacterial carbohydrate here, a smidgen of viral protein there, an ounce or two of toxins just to round things out. Mmm, toxins. But vaccines offer the immune system something it can recognize and respond to. So when the patient is exposed to the real infection, with its relatively massive amounts of antigen, the immune system is prepared and can react immediately to minimize the damage, rather than the usual delay it takes before immunity kicks in. You know, like FEMA and New Orleans. Um, maybe not so much. Perhaps my metaphorableness is lacking today. There has to be something there, however, a real molecule of some sort that the immune system can recognize and respond to. There is a threshold below which foreign material will not be recognized. Tetanus is the interesting example, an impressively awful disease in those suffering from it with every muscle contracting due to the tetanus toxin. But interestingly, there is sometimes not enough toxin causing the disease for the immune system to recognize and develop an antibody to. That is why those who get tetanus still need to get the vaccine after they recover to prevent recurrence. Homeopathy, of course, is the art of giving absolutely nothing and believing that it is something, kind of like electioneer promises. A reader sent me an article on homeopathic vaccinations, which is one of the more bizarro concepts I have yet to discover in my wanderings in the world of scams. Sometimes it really feels like somebody 
is pulling an elaborate prank on me. The first law behind vaccines and homeopathy is the same. Like cures like, although vaccines have a slightly different application of that concept than homeopathy. Vaccines are the only medical validation of the first law of homeopathy of which I am aware. It is the second law of homeopathy where medicine and reality part company with homeopathy and its law of dilutions. Where vaccines are given with a well-characterized concentration of an antigen, homeopathic nostrums are often diluted long past the point where anything remains behind. If a homeopathic nostrum is 20C, then there is no longer even a molecule of the original substance in the mixture, which, as we shall see, may be a good thing, since homeopaths use nosodes, I think that's pronounced correctly, as their vehicle for imaginary vaccination. The word nosode comes from the Latin no, meaning lack of, and sod, comprehension of reality. There are other interesting definitions of sod, S-O-D-E, on the Urban Dictionary that are not applicable to this particular podcast. You can look them up at your leisure. A nosode is, quote, a homeopathic remedy prepared from a pathologic specimen. The specimen is taken from a diseased animal or person and may consist of saliva, pus, urine, blood, or disease tissue, end quote. And people complain about the alleged toxins in real vaccines. Nosos are cargo cult medicine at its finest. They have the trappings of real medicine with none of the efficacy. For once, I am delighted that homeopathic nostrums are diluted to the point of nothingness. At least with serial dilutions, HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C are unlikely to be spread from injecting the patient with concoctions derived from various and sundry bodily fluids. At least we left the techniques of jitter behind with modern medicine. And fortunately, nosodes are primarily used in veterinary medicine since evidently some people have no qualms about giving nothing to their dog. One can purchase nosodes for human use for anything from anthrax to the variola smallpox virus at either 30 or 200 C or 200 dilution. In a rare burst of honesty, one website notes, quote, there are no whole molecules of an actual substance in 30 C potency, unquote. And another website notes, quote, homeopathic vaccines do not contain thimerosal, aluminum, borax used to kill ants, or other chemical elements. Also, in the studies that have been able to proceed, no child has had any severe side effects from homeopathic vaccines given, end quote. Which is good, since they do contain nothing, it would seem unlikely they could have any side effects at all. But get this, they have a no-sode for smallpox? It is supposedly derived from the ripened pustule of a smallpox patient, and I really have to wonder about their source. There has been no smallpox in the world since about the mid-1970s, except in some bio-labs in the United States and the now-defunct Soviet Union. So either they have a stock of smallpox that they feed like sourdough starter, or 
perhaps they are not really selling the real deal. Even Twinkies have expiration dates, but I guess the energy in homeopathic remedies lasts for decades, with the smallpox nostrums maintaining their potency through the ages. Despite the nonsensical underpinnings of homeopathy, are there any clinical trials or studies to support the use of nosodes? As best I can discover, there are two clinical trials in animals of nosodes. One in calves that did not show any benefit, and one that mice that did. And there's also a trial for leptospirosis I will talk about in detail later. And there are two cases of fatal polio after receiving homeopathic vaccinations for polio. So that is it in PubMed, not a convincing literature for efficacy. Now, life and medicine generate facts and experiences that require conceptual frameworks to aid in understanding. It is no good to have a pile of facts if they cannot be understood within a broader understanding. The practice of infectious diseases while certainly aided by understanding anatomy and physiology and microbiology and chemistry and the other sciences that form the core of medicine, referred to in medical school as the basic sciences, I prefer the acidic sciences, gains a broader application and appreciation from the concepts of evolution. Infectious diseases at its most fundamental level is applied evolution and understanding evolution often adds greater insight into infectious disease. Me find bug, me kill bug, me go home may be my motto, but it is meant in jest. There have been other papers and books that have added conceptual frameworks to my understanding of the natural world in medicine. Besides evolution, there was observations on spiraling empiricism, a classic that all healthcare providers should read, as it outlines the cognitive errors we all make in providing medications. I have discussed this article before. And there is the wonderful The Drunkard's Walk, How Randomness Rules Our Lives. So often the explanation of why something happens is a shrug of the shoulders. Theses occurs. That book, however, formalized my understanding that much of what happens is random and without cause. The challenge in medicine is trying to find a pattern in the randomness of life upon which the basic diagnosis it is equally critical to recognize when patterns are not really there. All too often, what is seen as a pattern is our imposing structures on what are essentially random events. Or maybe that really is a bunny in the clouds. Clinical studies results often occur by chance, and having a significant p-value may still be due to randomness if the study is measuring nonsense. Recently, why most published research findings are false has added my understanding to the old saw that half of everything you learn in medical school will be proven false after you graduate. The problem when you're a medical student is they do not tell you which half. There are six rules in that paper from evaluating studies that stem from evaluation of the literature. I think these are important rules and worth putting you to sleep with. He calls them corollaries. Corollary 1. The smaller the studies conducted in the scientific field, the less likely the research findings are to be true. Okay. Corollary 2. The smaller the effect sizes in a scientific study, the less likely the research findings are to be true. Corollary 3. 
The greater the number and the lesser the selection of tested relationships in a scientific field, the less likely the research findings are to be true. Corollary 4. You are getting sleepy. Very sleepy. You are now going to write a check to Mark Chrislip for $10,000. Corollary 4. The greater the flexibility in designs, definitions, outcomes, and analytical models in a scientific field, yeah, I know, the less likely the research findings are to be true. Corollary 5. The greater the financial and other interests and prejudices in a scientific field, the less likely the research findings are to be true. And finally, corollary six, the hotter a scientific field, the more scientific teams involved, the less likely the research findings are to be true. Yeah, I know. But those are good corollaries from his research. It is why much of medicine and science is tentative and emphasizes the importance, as best as can be determined at a given time, of considering all the information. I tell the residents that a big part of becoming a doctor is learning to be comfortable with incomplete and changing information. Being a specialist is being ignorant with style. Quote, what matters is the totality of evidence. Instead of chasing statistical significance, we should improve our understandings on the range of R values. That's the pre-study odds. Pirates do a lot of R values where research efforts operate. Before running an experiment, investigators should consider what they believe the chances are that they are testing a true rather than a non-true relationship. End quote. It is where the Cochrane reviews fail and fail so spectacularly on topics as diverse as the efficacy of influenza vaccine to the efficacy of homeopathy. Failure to consider all the information casts doubt on influenza vaccine and suggests legitimacy of homeopathy. In the world of clinical medicine, when considering an intervention, I have to take into consideration as much of the literature as I can from basic plausibility all the way to messy clinical trials. What separates a proponent of science-based medicine from practitioner of scams is that those in science-based medicine are all too aware of the numerous foibles and errors to which humans are prone, distorting a true understanding of the natural world. What makes a good skeptic and a good doctor is an understanding of the multitudinous ways in which we fool ourselves and we fool others. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me, you won't get fooled again. Which brings us back to no-sodes. In the first reference, do homeopathic no-sodes protect against infection? An experimental test by W.B. Jonas. Just on the basis of the first five corollaries, the odds are the study is wrong. Not to mention the pretest probability, the R, that this study, if positive, will be testing a true relationship. Let's see the R value of any homeopathic study, the chance that what they are measuring is a true phenomenon is exactly zero. There is zero pretest probability that any positive result of a homeopathic intervention represents an effect from the homeopathic nostrum since homeopathy is nonsense. Dr. Jonas, the sole author, 
is a former director of the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. So, while the study was done at Walter Reed Army Institute, Corollary 5 jumps to mind is perhaps more important than where the study was done. Let's look at the quality of this study. Groups of four to six mice received either ethanol, alcohol, 70%, or varying dilutions of pure reed leptospirosis infected mouse, lung, liver, and spleen in 70% alcohol. Some of these nosodes had measurable proteins in them. The author measured the amount of proteins in these nostrums using the Lowry procedure, a semi-quantitative measurement of proteins which I remember using as a fellow. It is not the world's most accurate technique for measuring proteins. It is usually referred to as semi-quantitative. It is less accurate when there is a host of other organic materials in the solution, as one might expect from a melange of liver, lung, and spleen. Now for me, ingestion of 70% alcohol leads to amnesia. So how 70% alcohol can remember the initial material better than water is not mentioned in the study. Is a study with 70% alcohol meaningful for, quote, classic, unquote, water-based homeopathy? Are serial dilutions of 70% alcohol applicable to homeopathy as practiced? Stupid questions. Homeopathy has nothing to do with reality. Must remember this is tooth fairy science. Mice received about 16 doses of nosode or placebo before infection challenge with leptospirosis and about 40 doses after the infectious challenge with leptospirosis. Compared to alcohol, which is not a placebo, since alcohol does have a variety of immunomodulatory effects. Overall, the no-sode group died after 18.6 hours and the control at 13.7 hours with a P of 0.002. Please note, they still died. Overall mortality was 75% in the control group, 53% in the no-sode. Standard vaccination, which they did in some mice, was vastly superior to either alcohol or no-sode with, hmm, let's see, 100% protection with no deaths. Now, there was no dose-dependent result, which would be a surprise if this were a real medication that were being used, but not perhaps if you're using an antigen. Here is why. If you expose an animal to a pathogen, say Canada albicans, a yeast, and then shortly thereafter infect the animal with, say, Listeria monocytogenes, a bacterial, the animals that had had prior exposure to Canada will have decreased mortality compared to those animals that were not exposed to Canada. The immune response has been primed nonspecifically for a subsequent infectious challenge. One telling aside in the study is the one mixture had no effect, and that was the 1000C nosode prepared by a commercial pharmacy. The author postulates, quote, perhaps handling while in transit or differences in preparation of the commercial nosode affected the 1000C level, unquote. And he also worries that the mechanical succussion does not have the same effect of hand succussion, which in the real world is akin to worrying that tooth fairies exchanged the real nosode for mere alcohol while he slept. 
Of course, tooth fairies only concern themselves with teeth. So, bad example. I suspect, but cannot prove, having been involved in bench research back in the day, isolating and measuring proteins, that the author did a bad job at making his dilutions, but not the commercial pharmacy. And the nosodes were contaminated with more puree of infected mouse innards than he suspected. The result is a typical mild protective effect if you get prior exposure to antigens. Alternatively, it is just the usual random results you see in small studies combined, perhaps, with another example of seeing N-rays. People get the results in clinical trials sometimes that they want to get. Overall, not impressive and a low-quality study with little applicability to, quote, classic homeopathy. And like many studies in the scam literature, not repeated with better methodology. The author states at the end, quote, Attempts to replicate these experiments under more controlled conditions, example, complete blinding. Hello, you don't have blinding in this trial? Of course not. Only one person did it, so he knew all the parameters. And using aerosol methods for more uniform dosing are underway, end quote. That was 11 years ago. I wonder what happened to the results. Follow-up studies using better methodologies does not really seem to be the strong suit of patients in the scam field. And seriously, there has to be less expensive and less cruel ways to kill off 142 mice. Decon is certainly cheaper, and spring-loaded traps are certainly quicker. Given that homeopathy is divorced from reality, this is more needless cruelty to animals than a reasonable scientific study. The negative no-sewed study with calves is another example of gratuitous animal torture. And I am about as far from PETA as anyone. I mean, I love veal. What they did in this study was injected 14 calves with lungworm and treated them with either placebo or a homeopathic no-sewed. The no-sewed did nothing, but the lungworm, quote, on day 13 after challenge, all the calves in both groups showed marked increased respiratory rates, especially the calf in the control group. The condition of this animal deteriorated rapidly in the following days, and it was killed with an overdose of sodium pentobarbitone on day 15. The remainder continued to show signs of moderate to severe respiratory distress, similar to those seen in acute parasitic bronchitis, and by the morning of day 21, two of the calves were treated with the homeopathic nosode were found dead. In other words, they tried to slowly suffocate a bunch of calves for no damn good reason. So, how well do you think a nosode will protect your child from, say, pertussis? Have there been studies in humans? Well, one, in Cuba. Large-scale application of highly diluted bacteria for leptospirosis in epidemic control, published in Homeopathy in July 2010. Does anyone know about the Declaration of Helsinki? It allegedly governs human research ethics. For hoots and giggles, I will quote from the Wikipedia. Quote, Research should be based on a thorough knowledge of the scientific background, a careful assessment of risks and benefits, have a reasonable likelihood of benefit of the population studies and be conducted by suitably trained investigators using approved protocols subject to independent ethical review and oversight 
by a properly convened committee. Under those criteria, I imagine all homeopathic and CAM research could not ethically be done. They also note, quote, The fundamental principle is respect of the individual, their right for self-determination, and the right to make informed decisions, end quote. Yep, that is where Cuba excels, so I'm encouraged by this study. Now, from an infectious disease point of view, leptospirosis is a cool disease. It is carried by animals, who then piss it into the dirt. If there are floods, the leptospira in the dirt gets washed into rivers and lakes that people will deliberately or accidentally come into contact with. In the U.S., I usually see it in kayakers, and there are a lot of reports where it occurs in Ironman competitors who get exposed during the freshwater swim of their competition. Remember, when you are in that beautiful Hawaiian waterfall, there are cows pissing leptospirosis into the water upstream. Leptospirosis causes fevers, headaches, muscle aches, and in the worst cases, liver and or kidney failure. In Oregon, I see a case about every five years or so. In Cuba, they had a problem with leptospirosis spread by flooding and decided that the primary cause of the disease must be thirst. I assume at least that they thought it was thirst since they treat it with homeopathy, and that is odd given that the problem was perhaps due to flooding. They prepared a 200C nosode from a million leptospira and gave 2.4 million people in three Cuban provinces managing to get 95% of the people to take this nosode. Now that was 2000C, as in diluted to one part in 10 to the 20,000. Remember that the number of atoms in the observable universe is approximately 10 to the 80, so that the entire universe is not big enough to contain a 200C dilution. And they used the Korsakovian dilution method. This was named for Dr. or Mr. Korsakov, where they make each dilution by filling a container, then they empty it out, and they assume that the amount of water or liquid that's stuck to the sides of the container is sufficient for the dilution ratio. Then you refill the bucket, shake it, pour out all the water, and repeat for the desired number of dilutions. Seriously. That is how the preparation was prepared. They gave 4.8 million doses, two per person. That is a lot of doses in a resource-poor country. They used, quote, 5,000 personnel of public health system of Cuba, which included family doctors, nurses, social workers, and paramedics that were trained in the administration procedure, end quote. Think what could have been accomplished if these people had been used for something practical and effective. It's depressing, really, to see how so much human capital was squandered for nothing. Well, maybe not, as we shall see. They then compared the leptospirosis rates to the rest of Cuba. So they had no internal control. They didn't randomize the treatment to people within the area that was having the infection. They compared the treatment group in the area that was having infection to the rest of Cuba. That will make it very difficult to determine efficacy, as we shall see. Now, go to the blog, I Cannot Change the Laws of Physics, 
and the entry Much Ado About Nothing from August 8, 2010, if you want to see some most excellent graphs about this study. After the intervention, the leptospirosis rates fell to the Cuban average. A triumph of homeopathic nosodes, right? Well, also occurring was a widespread publicity program. Boy, I'm now talking like Baba Wawa. Also occurring was a widespread publicity. <laughs> also occurring was a widespread publicity program. Quote, information about the product and the intervention was provided by local TV, radio programs, newspapers, and also free available through information desks spread over the area. What were they doing? They were promoting the drinking of safe water and avoiding the potentially contaminated water being put in cuts and scratches, simple hygienic techniques that are highly effective in preventing the spread of leptospirosis. Also, about 3% of the population, 72,000 people, received antibiotics and routine immunization. And if they targeted high-risk populations, that could have a disproportionate effect on the results. One would think if the homeopathic intervention was effective and not due to aggressive education about techniques to avoid infection combined with standard therapy of high-risk groups, that the rate would have fallen below the rest of Cuba. But no, it didn't. It fell to the usual rate in Cuba. The effect can almost certainly be attributed to the education provided by the 5,000 healthcare workers. So maybe they were not so wasted after all, and to the media blitz that accompanied the leptospirosis treatment program. Certainly, 5,000 healthcare workers giving one on one advice about how to avoid leptospirosis is going to have a significant impact on disease spread. Then they finish off with a very scary paragraph Quote, However, research could be hindered by perceived competition with conventional vaccines. Therefore, other common infections with significant morbidity and/or mortality lacking effective and feasible conventional treatment, such as dengue fever, malaria, and antibiotic-resistant bacterial infections should be targeted first. In spite of our lack of theoretical understanding of homeoprophylaxis, ethical approval of future studies will be facilitated by this impressive study by our Cuban colleagues. I hope the people who wrote this paper were the first in line to take their homeopathic preventatives for dengue and malaria. If you want to make some real money, invest in coffins in the areas where these studies will be done, probably in places like Cuba, where declarations of Helsinki can be safely ignored. One side does recognize that homeopathic vaccines, I need air quotes, do not work like standard vaccines by leading to the development of antibodies. Quote, homeopathic preparations have not been shown to raise antibody levels. Smits tested the titer of antibodies to diphtheria, polio, and tetanus in chin children before and one month after giving homeopathic preparations of these three vaccines. He found no rise in antibody levels. He speculates that the protection offered by a homeopathic remedy acts on a deeper level than that of antibodies. Ooh. 
Other homeopaths have stated similar opinions. Golden says, quote, Unlike conventional vaccines, the homeopathic alternative does not rely on antibody formation. End quote and end quote again. If I had four quotes, I'd have a gallon. Of interest, homeopaths even argue the validity of homeopathic vaccinations since their nostrums are classically supposed to be effective only after symptoms have occurred. It does make for a curious reading, one group of nonsense arguing that another group of nonsense is, well, nonsense. The sad thing is parents will be fooled into thinking that their children are protected from infectious diseases when, in fact, they are not. Vaccines do not provide perfect protection, neither do seatbelts. But a vaccine is superior to the nothingness of homeopathy. And I would bet that the parents would not rely on their child car restraint made by the same process as a homeopathic nostrums. My colleagues use terms like highly unlikely or highly implausible to describe the precepts of homeopathy. I guess, therefore, I am not a true skeptic. Some things are as the world is currently understood, impossible. Perpetual motion machines are impossible. Accelerating past the speed of light is impossible. There are few, if any, scams that I would classify as impossible out of hand. If you stick needles into people or pop their neck, you will get some sort of effect, though perhaps not the effect intended. For example, infection and stroke. There is always the possibility that the scam is doing something, though perhaps not in the ways envisioned by the practitioner. Even something as goofy as iridology or live blood analysis has the opportunity, albeit very rare, to make a real diagnosis. Only homeopathy has the honor of being the only scam based totally on fantasy. It was pointed out after I first wrote this that Riki also has that particular honor as well. So we'll say homeopathy and Reiki as the only two scams that are totally based on fantasy. I would classify the basic precepts of succussion and dilution to increase potency as impossible, not implausible. I'm sorry, not dilution, potentiation, or as it is more appropriately called in fantasy fiction, casting a spell. Homeopathy is 100% nonsense, and like its nostrums, uncontaminated by reality. Sometimes it is argued that in the lower concentration of spells, there may be a molecule or two of an agent that could have an effect, to which I call shenanigans. I subscribe to the concept of a dose effect of chemicals, and there's a concentration below which molecules will have no effect. The alleged toxins in vaccines are not toxic because the concentrations are inconsequential. The effects of homeopathic nostrums at initial spell castings are as equally unable to have an effect as the later spell castings. If homeopaths were to say that the act of serial dilution and succussion slowly transformed the water into unicorn tears, a universal curative, it would not make the underlying concepts less rational or more divorced from natural law. I don't think I'm doing a very good job of suppressing my total lack of respect for the underlying fictions of homeopathy. At one time, as an example, we did not know how aspirin worked, only that it was effective. 
that the science of chemistry and pharmacology, etc., eventually led to the understanding that aspirin results in the irreversible inactivation of cyclooxygenase enzyme, which prevents the production of prostaglandins and thromboxanes. As you increase the dose of aspirin, the receptors are filled until all the receptors are used up and there is no more effect by giving more aspirin. Elucidating the action of aspirin did not require a completely new understanding of the basic sciences. If homeopathy did indeed work, then all we know of the natural world is wrong. You tell me which is more likely. All the basic sciences are correct, or homeopathy is correct. The two are mutually exclusive. But maybe homeopathy does give us deeper insight into the natural world, since I have subsequently discovered that homeopathy is powered by dark energy. <gasps> In the end, I wonder at times if science-based medicine and medical journals are the correct forum for discussions of the validity of the underlying precepts of homeopathy. What is the proper forum for the discussion of magic? The fantasy fiction section, not the science section, of the library. Or perhaps homeopathy is the purview of the anthropologist and psychologist as a cultural delusion. Quote, Delusions are irrational beliefs held with a high level of conviction that are highly resistant to change even when the delusional person is exposed to forms of proof that contradict the belief. Non-bizarre delusions are considered to be plausible. That is, there is a possibility that the person believes could be true could actually occur a small portion of the time. Conversely, bizarre delusions focus on matters that would be impossible in reality. For example, a non-bizarre delusion might be the belief that one's activities are constantly under observation by federal law enforcement or intelligence agencies, which actually does occur for a small number of people. By contrast, a man who believes that the fundamental precepts of homeopathy are true holds a belief that could never come to pass in reality, end quote. In medicine, we determine that a behavior is pathologic when it starts to have negative consequences for the patient or others. Alcohol is the classic example, where use blends from fun to pathologic as harm accrues in the patient and his environment. Homeopathy would appear to be another. Just go look at whatstheharm.org and see the people killed by believing in homeopathy. I look forward to the inevitable when you point a finger you have three pointing back at yourself reply. When I was first in practice, I saw a patient in clinic for parasites. The room reeked of garlic as he was continually chewing on raw garlic cloves as he said it suppressed the parasite. In discussing his symptoms, he told me that the air was full of these parasites and they would land on his skin and burrow in. Eh, probably delusions of parasitism, I thought, as no parasite has this life cycle. But it is not unusual for patients to misattribute symptoms to an erroneous cause, so I had to make sure he did not have some illness he was not mistakenly attributing to parasites. So I asked him, you know, how do you know? They're parasites. Well, I collect them, he said, and he held up a large brown jar it rattled dryly as he shook it. Can I see them? And where do you get them? 
from my nose, he replied, as he dumped three cups of dried boogers on the exam table. To my credit, I neither screamed nor vomited, although I could not eat garlic for over a year. I see no conceptual difference between the jar of parasites and a jar of homeopathic nostrums, save for the former, to my knowledge, has never killed a child. And so ends the crack cast number 55, plus or minus two or three, homeopathetic vaccinations. Don't forget to go to moremark.squarespace.com where you will find links to my other blogs, my other podcasts, and all things me. Because, as you know, the world needs more Mark Chrislip. Otherwise, go on iTunes and write me a glowing review. As always, my ravenous ego demands it. You see you next time for... Quackcast.